it can be really hard to find folks these days who have a positive outlook on the state of America in 2021. Buildings are falling, virus variants are surging, and heat waves are simmering, and the Olympics have been all but canceled. So even though I think it'd be pretty tough to argue that any year could be worse than 2020, 2021 hadn't been sunshine and roses yet itself. But maybe that's all just perspective, because if you put 2020 aside, I can remember celebrating the end of 2019 and how horrific that year was. It was the year of the mass shooting in church in Christchurch, New Zealand. It was the year of the Ethiopian plane crash. The, there were mass shootings in Houston and Charlotte in 2019. There were tornadoes all across the Southeast in 2019. And I remember getting to the end of that year and just thinking, thank God this is over. 2020 is going to be incredible. And we all know how that went. <laughs> so in retrospect, was 2019 really that bad? Is 2021 even that bad? Or have we just learned how to fixate on the horrific? Do we dwell on the negative too much instead of amplifying the positive? Politicon's guest this week believes that we do, and she makes a pretty strong argument. Audrey Cavanesia is the chief content officer for Amplify Voices, and she's the co-host of the Amplify Voices podcast, alongside future Hall of Fame football coach Pete Carroll. Each week, both of them speak with newsmakers and legends about the positives in their lives, and they seek to amplify those positive stories that most of us don't get to hear from these folks. So this week, she's here to share with me her secret for positivity. I'll ask her what she thinks has caused us to divide so much into our own little ideological silos. And of course, how the heck are we going to get along? Do you, um, you, so you record your podcast from, from your house, right? Since the pandemic? No, 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 we, we've been doing it in studio. And then when Pete is not available to come in and he has to stay in the office, because there have been a few times where they've recalled the, the quarantine. Um, uh then in that case, he'd do it remotely, but I would stay in studio because we really wanted to have a filming component to it, you know, where oh, right. we're really integrating the people. Behind so the even scenes. during the pandemic, you were able to, you well, were we able to do that. We didn't our podcast till this year, so we weren't exactly if totally affected by that. We were at the tail end of it. Oh, well, we've been, we've been <laughs> in this. Well, bathroom. you see behind me, I've got all these lights and everything, and it's because... <laughs> It's because this is like my new life. This was supposed to be live also. And my whole life just ended up in the house for this podcast. And, you know, why not? So right, I just yeah. decided let's buy some lights. If I'm going to have to be on camera, I might as well not look as busted well, as I normally do. So. Oh, well, that's all lighting. Mm. That is all lighting. Um, so. But you, you guys are doing something similar to what I think we would aspire to do. Um, you you may be doing it better than us. You you try to make sure that people's from all sides of, uh, you know, from different backgrounds. Tell me tell me what your what would you, if you had to if we were in an elevator and you had ten floors to tell me what your podcast is about. How would you describe it? Uh, literally, what our tagline is: conversations from the heart. So we really just feel like we've come out of a really divisive authoritarian era. And let's just say in the best case scenario, it's been a hero era, us waiting for other people to save us, to be there for us. And, and we really think the most important thing to focus on now is there's so many great people trying to work it out, trying to have conversations, trying to not create more lines and more anger and more bottlenecks. And we just want to amplify those voices. 
Now, it doesn't mean they necessarily agree with everything that we agree with. It's not about that. But we really start off every conversation like this. So what's on your heart? And it kind of stops people because, you know, you got to check in with that. We're so here in our heads, and there's so much going on with what we think, how we're reacting, how I feel, how that person's looking at me, how that call went, what's going on in my life. But to locate yourself back in your heart and be like, you know what, what is really on my heart? So those conversations have... You know, while they've been with very well-known people and Rachel Maddow or Van Jones or Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, they get on that call and they're like, here's all the thing that I'm supposed to say on a podcast. And we go, hey, what's on your heart? And they're like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Let me, let me just check that. And you know what? Sometimes it's sadness. Is that what you're finding? Yeah. Sometimes it's just people saying, hey, you know what? My life's in a great place, even given the circumstances, but I don't feel really great about what's going on with our nation or... Uh, with Van Jones, it was it was very powerful because here is a man who stood in for and inside of and with the black community. And while he definitely has had that Democratic Republican, you know, battle, if you will, this was the first time during a last number of these past years where there started to be some contention within the black community. And we ended that call, both of us, in tears, sobbing. And, and then Van was like, oh, great. <laughs> now I'll be crying. Great, Audrey, thanks. But, that uh, ain't the first time Van's cried on camera. Right, right? So it's okay. <laughs> you know, wherever, you're, wherever you are is where you're at. And I think that we're so busy. We got so much going on. There's so much to process, especially coming out of this pandemic, though, right, Clay? It's like people were, hey, I know where, where I stand. I know maybe where my family stands, but I have problems with these people over here or over here. But during the pandemic, during the crisis, after George Floyd's murder, we found out things about our own family members that we didn't even know. So people were, you know, they're in a lot of different places and they want to have a lot of different conversations. And when we set up that context of, so what's on your heart, it does kind of recontextualize what we're about to say. All of us. You know, is it therapy for you too? I think, you know, I'd have to go back and look at the exact definition of therapy. I think more so that it is healing. And I wouldn't, we don't all heal from therapy. We have lots of different places that we heal from. And I do find that having a conversation where all three of us, in that case, you know, Pete, Pete myself, and the guest, is we don't have questions prepared. We don't have a bunch of things lined up. We really just invite them to be with us, and we have a conversation as human beings. And it ends up where it ends up, and it goes where it goes. And I think there's something very healing about that, to just stop everything for a moment and be present. I mean, when we were on with Cory Booker, it was really interesting because he was talking a lot, uh, a lot about his stance and, and, and where, what he's committed to and what he's focused on. And then at some point, you know, just kind of stopping in and checking in his heart, he goes, you know, I found out a friend of mine died of gun violence, and I haven't even been able to deal with that today because I've just been on nonstop calls. But just on the podcast, it's just like you can kind of process things. So I don't know. Is that kind of like, <laughs> is that like anything that you've heard before or what other people are doing? I think it would be great. I mean, it would be. I, I find myself, I mean, we sort of do this podcast in a similar way. Obviously, we talk about politics and issues right. more specifically. But I find that I, I know the producers get frustrated with me because they do write a whole bunch of questions and <laughs> do a whole bunch of prep work. You didn't say and this poor one. Thing, <laughs> the poor enough for this one. They'd be thrilled if I didn't ask just one of the ones they wrote down. But I do my best to kind of let it go in that direction too. But I find that, you know, 
And I wonder if you find this too, and maybe you don't, that, that there is, as you say, there's a, the way people speak on camera or the way people speak on microphone can be very different than the yes. way that they speak when you're just talking to them normally, right? Do you find that you have trouble getting anybody to, honestly, I mean, I haven't spoken to Cory Booker. He's the type of person who, I don't want you to talk about him necessarily, but he's the type of person who, who strikes me as someone who probably has a pretty hard time turning off the performance um, portion. Do you find that that's difficult with certain types of people, politicians, government leaders, uh, entertainers, to to be able to shed that and get rid of that wall at any point? I wouldn't say that it's difficult, Clay. I'd say that it is almost like you have to repeat it a couple of times. It's, it's <laughs> like, you know, we're just gonna have a conversation hard. Okay, and you're like, no, 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 like seriously, like we really meant it. It wasn't like-, like a, drop the, you know, drop the talking point. <laughs> you can go ahead, you can talk. But I will tell you this, and Pete and I have found this, that Two things I think are most distinct in, in this, and this can go beyond a podcast, this can go into our lives, that if you share something about yourself that's authentic, that's true to where you are, it does create the space for people to be at that same place with you. And I think the second thing is that if you ask them to tell a story about their life, it's very different than just a Q&A. You know, I think that a Q&A is naturally you people, it's putting us in a position where a lot of times we become a reporter or an observer of our life as opposed to located in our life. And stories tend, because they're so vivid and descriptive, as you kind of be there in that moment and recall what things smelled like, what they felt like, how you made certain decisions about your life, which is very distinct. So to an example, when we interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, here's a man who's just spoke to all different kinds of different kinds of people, colleges and, and, and scientists and on and on. I mean, we couldn't find anything on YouTube with a demographic that he hadn't spoken to. Right. And when we got him on, I think he was prepared to just do a lot of just basic run-on science questions. And we were asking him about his life. And it was kind of took him back a little bit. You can kind of hear it in the podcast, just ever so slightly. But at some point, we asked him about a moment in his life when he was young, uh, younger, I should say. And um, he... Uh, he talked about a, a very deciding factor that where he realized being a black man in science is more than him just fulfilling on something that's part of his purpose. It actually contributes to other people because typically black people are not asked just about science. They're asked about their black perspective of science. And it was a very vivid share and it emotionally moved him. And at the end of it, he was like, thank you so much for letting me share that. I hadn't thought about that in a really long time. And you know, I mean, all we are is just an accumulation of chapters and stories anyway, right? So, But, very, but so rarely do we get the chance to hear those. Because yeah. as you said, people go on to most of the shows that they go on to prepared. Neil deGrasse Tyson's going to talk about science. Cory Booker's going to talk about policy. So-and-so's going to talk about the show that they're promoting and whatnot. Um, so I, I, I wonder if that is, is it an, is it, have we evolved into a group of, into a species, or um, at least into a society where we're just, it's much more difficult for us to be authentic um, than it used to be? Like, there's a lack of authenticity, I feel like, in America yes. now. Yes, I think, you know, I, I, I think it's very simple that 
I mean, you're from the South, right? So, Oh, yeah. You, you can't tell that by talking to me. <laughs> I know people didn't know that on this podcast, but <laughs> I just wanted to clarify that for everybody. No, but if you think of just what I love so much about the South and what I love so much about Southerners, there's time to listen to your story. What I love so much about Hawaii and what I love about the Hawaiians is that they have a distinction called talk story, where they sit down and have a drink or sit on the lanai and they just talk story with you. And what that is, is it's your story. It's your life. And they want to know and they're present and they're engaged. Uh, you know, but you, we don't have well, patience for that anymore, do we? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, you won't know me unless you ask me some of my stories. I won't know really about you. And then what we have is just our bias. What we have is just our assumptions. What we have oh, yeah. is our first blink blink a read. And so, like you said, we don't have time. But you know what? We have the architecture and the infrastructure to tell stories. So while you may not have the time to sit with me and have a drink and, and go on and on, I could create a body of short form stories. I could target a certain particular demographic or area. I could collaborate with other people and find ways where we can collectively share our stories from different um, perspective so that it goes into our distinct demographics and gives an opportunity to show two people working together. You know, if you, if you think about, if we, I mean, we definitely think about it this way and we didn't intend this way, but just merely my picture next to Pete Carroll's on our podcast tells you a little bit of a story about our commitment and our stand. Um, because you're not going to click on many icons that look like our two faces next to each other. Because yeah, how did you two get like, together? Well, Tell people that story. Does belong here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, me. <laughs> but, but, but how did you two get together? Because it is an interesting pairing, right? It's not an expected one. Maybe it's maybe it's expected now, but it wasn't when you started. Yeah. Um, well, it just happened last year, and at that time, Pete had been uh, in a lot of different places for many years sort of in, in, in um, contributing, I guess I could say this way, contributing his philosophy of that you can be competitive, you can work really hard, you can go for it, you can be challenging, you can be at the top of your game and never compromise your humanity and your treatment of other people. That it's possible to be both things and still be a competitor. And he's been that way always. He's done a lot of philanthropy work in that area. And of course, he's demonstrated that as a coach. And then he, um, he had a consulting company that his daughter ran. And, uh, and he was going in Microsoft and Google and different places. They were bringing that philosophy into team building. And so I had just moved to Seattle from Venice Beach, and I just was like, hmm, I want to get into something that I feel is really great, my next kind of project. And I came upon that they were looking to, uh, like, take their consulting company to a new level. And I got a hold of them, and I was like, I know you want to do all these things, but I have a much better idea for you. And to me, when I looked at him, when I looked, this was right at the beginning of January 2020. So that's right at the precipice before we really start right. all our lives. Before the world changed, right? yeah. I had a feeling just coming into to, um, 2020, into 2021, I had a feeling that we were going to get a big paradigm shift. I had a feeling that things were going to truly change. Not in the way ever, right, that I could imagine. <laughs> but I you had that a coming? feeling that so many things were going to alter because of the direction that the world was going. And so I said to them, I was like, you know, the U.S. could really use some of that philosophy of a coach. We could really use some of that, of that morale. I didn't know in my vision of that and bringing storytelling and all of that, that 
the pandemic would hit that hard, that, you know, we would be sequestered, that there would have been a, a terrible murder and all that would have been unfolded. But shortly after that, they got back a hold of me and they were like, okay, we're, re we're ready for, to sit down and talk to you. And what I proposed was really a storytelling company, a company where we can bring together people. Instead of talking about in inclusivity, show it. Instead of talking about caring leadership, show it. And I think now, it's the most important thing. So how do you get people to be drawn to want to watch that? And there's, there's, more, there's more meat to that question. It's loaded. Um, because when, I remember when I was starting out in this entertainment business, <laughs> um, which is frighteningly 20 years ago now, um, I had a bunch of ideas that I wanted to do this, I wanted to do that, I wanted to do the show that, that talked about people getting a second chance. And, the, and every response I got from an agent or a, uh, whoever, a manager or a producer, was too earnest, too earnest. People don't want to watch earnest stuff. Um, people don't want to watch good news. People don't want to watch positive stories. They want to see housewives flipping tables over and cussing each other out. And I thought, no, that's not what they really want to see. But as I, they don't, it's not what they want to see. It's just what you give them. But as I've gone further in the 20 years that I've been doing this, I've started to realize, damn, I think it might be what they want to see. They don't, they think they don't want to see it. They think that in politics, they don't want people arguing. They think that they don't like these politicians who lie and cheat and, uh, and are hypocritical. But then when they get in the voting booth, they vote for them because of the negative ad they ran or when they sit down to watch TV or turn on the, uh, you know, a show on streaming, they immediately tune to the one that is the yeah. most gratuitous or the most salacious. They don't get hooked on the things that are feel good. So how do you get people to show up and want something that makes them feel good? They should, but they, and they love it after they've done it. Yeah. But how do you get them to show up? Uh, two very, very succinct and simple answers. One is that, well, actually I only have one answer and then I have an addendum to that answer, but the only answer I have is timing. Timing has met opportunity and that is this, that when we came through the Me Too movement, when we had the, the sort of giants starting to topple, the companies that were starting to be held accountable, if we notice in the last three-ish years, there has been a, like the, instead of Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill, that, that rock has been rolling down the hill. We've seen a colliding of one after the other of people being held accountable for bad behavior. Now we've forgiven in that era of the authoritarian leadership and whatever, we've forgiven so much bad behavior because why? Because they're producing results, because it's working, because people are watching it, isn't that great? It's okay that they're doing that. They're, they're our number one result producer. That's our number one show. That's our number one leader or CEO, right? But something happened and it wasn't just one thing, it was that and then the next thing and then the next thing. And when that happens, what we're experiencing is truly fundamentally a paradigm shift. It's a cascade of events that are happening close together that start to change the landscape of how people feel. Not to mention that you take your 20 years, this is the only time in history we have all been linked together. I can send a communication around the world in a nanosecond and everybody that in the world can scares the hell out of me, Audrey. We, right? we have never <laughs> had that before. So what I, what I mean by that is opportunity means, even if we had tried this 
two years ago, nobody would have gotten it. If we tried it last year, nobody would have gotten it. But the other thing, I'm going to say this. Yeah, finish. And I say this all, all, all the time to people because I think it's really, we have to always like remind ourselves, just because data tells us that something's successful doesn't mean that it's truly successful. As an example, if if I was at work and all the cart had was tuna sandwiches and they did a survey at the end of the year and they're like, man, Audrey and the rest of the employees love them some tuna sandwiches. I'd be like, no, that's all you give me. That's all I get to order, right? So if all you give us is sensationalism, drama, and divisiveness, and all of that, you know, we go to turn on the TV, we only have a limited amount of choices of what we're actually going to spend our time doing. So oh, we got plenty of choices now. But Too a limited many. amount of what we're actually <laughs> going to gravitate towards. You know, nobody's right. watching a thousand shows. They're going right. to watch a set of shows, just like the average person that watches and listens to a lot of podcasts, like seven a week, right? That's a lot. Seven podcasts a week, except for those people, you can already start to get the data and numbers. As we expand, not just what we have, but actually attach ourselves to the conversation where it's already happening, you can create momentum. People want to find out how do I have difficult conversations without shutting doors? How do I have difficult conversations and create progress? And I think I read the data the other day, and I don't know if this is, uh, please don't hold me to this, anybody, but I think uh -oh. something like 98% of people report they have a problem with conflict, that they avoid it. So if we've got a nation that has an avoidance to conflict, and then we are, keep driving at more conflict, and then our stories perpetuate more conflict, are we ever going to get along? I don't think so. So somebody's got to start having the conversation. Well, I want to go back a bit to what you were talking about with, with the, the rolling of the rock up the hill. There's a whole bunch of stuff I jot, jotted down as you were talking <laughs> because a lot of points I want to ask about. Do you, do you think that corporations really, when we talk about, we talk about authenticity of your guests, Let's talk about authenticity of these corporations, these corporations that fired some of the Me Too perpetrators right. um, that have made strides towards um, uh, diversifying or showing support for sort. Do you believe them? I mean, do you think that at some point some of these corporations are simply doing it because they know they need to for their bottom line? Um, or do you think, I, I mean, I think about last week we had a, um, a guest on the spokesperson for the log cabin Republicans. And we talked a little bit about pride month, which was last month and how quickly these pride celebrations pop up on Twitter uh, banners for all these corporations on June 1st. And then by midnight on June 30th, they're down. Yeah. And the whole yeah. month of June becomes about uh, Pride Month. And the whole month of February becomes about Black History Month. But once those months are over, a lot of these corporations stop. Do you really think, honestly, Audrey, that these folks who fired the Les Moonveses and the Charlie Roses and the, and the Matt Lowers of the world, do you think they really actually did it out of altruism and doing the right thing? Or do you think that a lot of this stuff is still governed by their bottom lines? How authentic is this chain? Yeah, well, uh, two things about that. One, I think absolutely... It's not a matter of whether I believe them. I guess I could roll into there's a large portion of them I don't believe if I answer it that way. But it's not a matter that I believe them. It's like the functionality of design is that you have to have something consistent in order to keep it alive over time. It, it takes something over time to build and grow. 
there's no way that someone can post a few black squares and some rainbow colors mm-hmm. or whatever and go, we're on your side. And then because organizations, uh, companies are organized around what they measure and what they measure is their bottom line. But what they don't measure is how caring or empathetic they are with their people. What they don't measure is if people feel and have a sense of being heard or seen or those things. Or diversity. I mean, you look at Silicon Valley, it was like 15 years that the number was like less than 6%, less than 3% of diversity. Right, but you're not going to get them to care about that as long as they're selling widgets. That's Yes and no, right? And I think that's where... It behooves us storytellers or those uh, in media that are committed to shifting the narrative, uh, like a a stand that I've taken as a woman of color, is that I'm not going to have stories or tell stories around, oh, come on, this is so unfair, help black people, help help women, help what, because... I already know that in the world of investment, they look at it like, well, that's more philanthropic. That's not really a good investment because I invest in things, right? They would be saying, I invest in things that are going to be a good opportunity for my investment. So why would I have a conversation or tell a story or build a narrative around, isn't this sad? We should be, or we should be morally upright to do this. I would instead have a conversation about value. What is the value of building these relationships with people. What is the okay, what is? win-win? Uh, I think it's untapped, right? If you leave out, I mean, just look at a color palette, right? If you're always painting with green and brown, I'm gonna tell you right now, your paintings are not very awesome, <laughs> right? But if you bring in a full color palette, what do you have? You have more options. We already have the data. We've had data for a very long time in the entertainment business, in, in business that says, Diverse teams are more successful. Women in founding positions or on boards do better. Women take, you know, do better with less money than men that they get invested. We already know that data. But that doesn't help us on our day-to-day, moment-to-moment, be able to work together. And that's what we have to focus on. How do you convince people then on the other side, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, Mm -hmm. how do um, you convince people that that's not a zero-sum game, that that's not a situation where in order for you to be able to use more beautiful colors in your painting, that doesn't mean that you're going... A lot of people in this country at this moment believe that in order for you to do that, it means you've got to stop using the white crayons that you had used before. So how do you convince people that's not the case? Well, I think it's showing areas where and building more focus, I think, on equity. I think that's where equity has become a very important conversation in terms of, um, you know, even with Pete and I looking at our projects, it's balancing out the entire equation, giving opportunities for more people and then building knowledge within those that they could go off and do their own projects and we find ways in which they can get funded. I think that's a really important part because it's, it's true that it sounds like if I break off half my candy bar, that means I get half. That doesn't mean we both enjoy it. But the difference is, I guess we would say, but if I'm always having less of something, it's going to come out of your pocket somewhere, I promise you. Whether it's your taxes or whether it's in your, you know, the, the land, there's some impact that, that, um, that lessening the morale of people by leaving people out of the narrative or, or specifically writing that or holding them down so that you can gain something, there is a backlash. And we know there's a backlash because we're experiencing it now. Have you had anybody on who feels that way on your show? 
that they will get less of something if somebody else gets more, <laughs> if we start yeah. to get more diverse. Uh, no, I don't think anybody's brought that up. There's been some different perspectives in terms of will, will things ever be different? Will things ever be different if we don't fully um, deal with white supremacy? And I personally don't. I personally don't agree with that. I think people, what you you know, you get more of what you focus on. I really believe that in life. And say I, that again for me. You get more of what you focus on. Elaborate. I don't know what you mean. You are you saying you get more white supremacy by focusing on white supremacy? I, I think you <laughs> you keep the narrative alive. You most certainly do. So the solution would be what then? The solution would be for us to focus, for us to build real data, real, like one of the things that I really love inside of being a storytelling is I'm very, very heavily involved with data storytelling and data analytics. I think they're a very important part to look at how we can measure things, how we can learn, how we can um, dispel our own myths. I think that's one of the biggest things for us to take on right now is, and myself included, is to, am I willing, am I willing to dispel a myth that I've had about someone, something, and somewhere. And so Have I Have you done that recently? Yeah, I had I, I was thinking out of the conversation, one of the things that I'm really been doing with the podcast episodes is going back and listening to them again and just kind of being able to have some perspective even with the things that I've shared. And one of the things that Van said in his episode was about how a lot of uh, African Americans had felt it was very unjust. Like, why do we have to keep stepping up and going to white people and helping them out? Why do we have to keep standing and fighting for things? We shouldn't have to keep fighting. We've been fighting for so long. And he said, yeah, I know. It's unfair, but it's necessary. And I think that's a very, very simple but powerful statement. And when I thought about that, it actually did make me reflect on last year where there were certain people that I just was like, after I saw how they handled George Floyd's murder, you know, whether it was on social media or in discussions that would be around me or what have you, I, I really did take it upon myself to be like, you know what, I'm not going to have that person in my life. I mean, some of these mm -hmm. people, people I knew for 20 years, Clay, they were not like. Isn't that what, they, but you're not alone in that, Audrey. I mean, oh, it's sure, that part yeah. of our, but in that part, I mean, to me, at least, that's the big problem <laughs> with Shit, everything. Because we have become, I mean, we have become incredibly siloed. And it, it's not just since the last president. It was prior to that. It was this, you know, when, when social media allowed us to group together everyone who we knew onto one page on Facebook and listen to them without dialogue necessarily, just hear their quick moments of their 180 character thoughts on Twitter without having any back and forth or any, and then slowly start to peel people away to a place where now your Facebook, not your Facebook page, but, yeah. but a global use Facebook page is just people who we agree with. I mean, I talked to, I talked to my, I, I talked to my, to me. right. <laughs> I, listen, I listen. I can't pretend that I'm not guilty of it. I've I've done it too, and I ain't even gonna apologize to the person I did it to. But um, I'm not that. I'm, God's still working on me. Um, but uh, I don't. I don't. I do talk to family, and I've t I've shared on this show many times that my family and I disagree on politics a lot. But I do talk to you know my uncle, who I love, love dearly. But mm -hmm. I'm telling you, 
we don't agree on politics. Yeah. But if you, but when I talk to him, he is convinced that everyone feels the same way he does. That he yeah. is a part of this silent majority. That everyone feels the same way that he does. And then I speak to a progressive friend, and they are convinced that everyone feels the way they do. And then both sides are just shocked that the election became so close, you know, that it was 50-50 yeah. almost. And I think, well, it's because, Uncle, you have blocked everybody who you disagree with. And it's because, liberal friend, you yeah. have blocked everyone you've disagreed with, and you think the world feels that way. And so when I asked you about whether or not you'd had people on the show who felt like part of their privilege... What it is. Mm -hmm. Part of their privilege was being taken away from them, but they didn't see it as privilege. They just saw it as, you know, I wanted to follow up with, do we think those stories should be amplified also? I mean, even though I don't agree with them personally, is it important to hear them in order to kind of understand where people are coming from? Or is it in, dangerous in to hear them? In my commitment and my passion, it's not about what stories should be heard. It's about reflecting the open discussion or the progressing of expanding how we see one another. And, it, and, it, and I don't mean to bring in storytelling like, oh, storytelling fantasies, so naive. I don't oh, mean, no, I'm with you. I get you. Right? But, but I mean storytelling like I loved when I, I – we didn't have her on the show, but I would love to. Um, Gina Davis, when she put together a foundation, and when you look at her data that she had researchers do, is so extraordinary around storytelling. 80% of all storytelling that we see around the world, 80% of it comes out of the United States. So when you think about biases, who's perpetuating those biases? We're really feeding into a great deal of them. She, she found so much data around how decisions are made through storytelling, through narratives that really affect bottom line, affect children's morale. I mean, so much data that it was, it was truly extraordinary. And, even and you're talking about... Real storytelling, not 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 fictional storytelling. You're talking about people sharing their own experiences. No, I'm talking about both, right? So both, anything okay. that comes out of media or films or television or cartoons or what have you, um, the data was quite extraordinary. So I, I I do think we always have to remember. I mean, even science points to that when someone explains something or gives you data, the brain doesn't remember it. But if you tell a story, there's connections within your brain that fire off equally in your left and right hemisphere. There's something about stories that shift. But look at our lives, how we learn from our grandma and our grandpa and what the truth was about our family and what we believed in what we did and all of that. It's, that's why I go back to, is there an opportunity here for us to start to bridge a narrative that's not on sides, but is more on ways that we can disagree but we can disagree with still honor for one another. And I think that's a very important thing because no one wins from arguing. I mean, I, if we do, we wouldn't have such a high divorce rate. But who, who wants to, I mean, I, literally, unless you're in a debate group, I don't see people progressing anything from just arguing and that being the main Oh, see, no, I would disagree with that because I think that I wish more people would argue. Well, I guess this is me my opinion. I yeah. wish people would argue more because I think some part of the problem we have, again, we talk about politics mostly on this show, but in D.C. is that they won't even try to, they won't even, dis they won't even talk to each other. You know, get in the room yes, and, and fight it out yeah. and argue it out and find a solution. You know, it's, it's about motivation different. and intention, right? It's, arguing is fine if your right. goal is to have, if your goal is to 100%. find a solution. Right. 
Right, I think that's different because what you're distinguishing about arguing goes back to what I said about the 98% uh, of people avoiding conflict, having a fear of, of conflict. Arguing then is a pathway, not an end result. And I think people put so much intention and focus around the argument or the disagreement that it becomes the end of the relationship or the avoidance of it. I'm talking mm -hmm. about what's the other side of arguing. Yeah, have disagreements. Yeah, be tough. All of that. But do you have an intention on the other side of this that we're actually both going to be better off? Because do that's you think where we, we do? stand. Do you think we as a nation, as a society, do you think we do have an intention to get along? Or do you think that we are satisfied with what we're, the with way we're handling things now? <laughs> yeah. I think at everyone's core, unless there is something physiologically um, restricting it, uh, like a, a deep mental health issue or something. I think at its core, if we're talking about the average human being, every person wants to just have a good life, wants to care for in whatever way their family, wants to not be in, in, in anything where they feel confined in or where they're in, in any state of self-loathing or anything they've been through. I mean, at, at anybody's core that you, that you truly sit down and talk to, I think most people get very surprised when you look at somebody for face value and then you go in and have a conversation, you're like, this is really strange because I would have never thought we had this much in common. I would have never- When's the last time you got mad at somebody? Every day. Every and, day. And, had, and, and, and like really got pissed at someone. I am innately in my constitution a very aggressive person. Are it you is, really? Oh my God. Yes. Okay. Well then tell me, when's the last time you got aggressive with someone? Yesterday. Was it someone you, was it someone you knew or someone you yes. didn't even know? I both. It was, it was actually both. both. And, and I think that a big, but the deconstructing of my narrative and the importance of that is I built this to survive what I didn't think I could be in life. Like no one was going to hurt me and no one was going to take anything from me. And because I was a woman of color and I wasn't getting opportunities as a little girl or seen a certain way, I'm going to show them, I'm going to have this chip on my shoulder and whatever. And you go through your life like I did and I had great results and I could lead things, but did I make people feel great? Did I make them feel like they felt, or was I like a hurt person hurting people? So for me, there's a lot of, like I think we all want to do when we want to be better people, there is an unraveling and saying, you know, just because I learned this way. Would you get I, canceled? I'm sorry? Would you get canceled if people knew these things, do you think? No. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I mean, no. if you would, you'd say. <laughs> no, don't be trying to cancel me. No. No, I, would, I don't. I hate I canceling. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But I yeah. wonder, I mean, just because I think, yeah, I'm mean to people too. <laughs> yeah. I'm a jackass also. Yeah. Most of the time, I think nowadays I'm mean in my head, but I definitely. Oh, no, I say it. <laughs> I'm working through, the thing that I'm working through is. Can I be honest? Can I be truthful? But can I leave the other person empowered in whatever way, even when the truth hurts? Can but I do you really? That? Come on now. When yeah. you're sitting there mad at somebody, do you really try to, do you really care of what you're doing? I mean, I don't. I'm just going to admit it. If I'm pissed at somebody, I'm not thinking until maybe a day later, oh, I wish I had, yeah, or oh, I should have. Something, Clay. Do you go to that person two days later or three days later and say, I want to revisit that conversation now? I've oh, yeah. If it's somebody who I know, I, I, if it's someone who I know, I do. But I usually don't get as mad at people who I know. That's why I asked you. Yeah, I it was it's usually somebody who I don't know. Yeah. 
I've done it with somebody in my building. It's been a practice of mine. Like I can get edgy fast and I can be really intimidating very quickly. And it's something I want to be responsible for, but it's probably nothing that's ever going to change. But hasn't it gotten you where you are? I mean, I mean, this, this, I don't know that you said the word chip on your shoulder, but, but some people who do have that, it gets them where they are. And I don't know that it necessarily is something we do a lot of, I can't decide whether I'd rather, well, let me put it this way. I personally would rather be a jackass than a victim of circumstances. Yeah. You know, I would rather I'm going to take care of my shit instead of allowing shit to take care of me. So yeah. is there not strength that comes from having a lot of the trials um, that you have been through? I mean, you, you've gotten to where you are today because of them. I'm not saying they were right to have to go through, sure. but there's benefit from them. Yeah. Yes. But that means that what I was informed by is that bad behavior gets rewarded when you produce results. And I'm partially a product of that too. So as human beings, we're not an either or. That's not how God designed us if people believe in God or nature or what have you. There's no either or in life. There's many possibilities. So when people get in this, well, you gotta do this or this and otherwise not gonna work, I'm always like, well, then that means you're trapped in a certain set of beliefs. That means you can, I mean, it's not, you go back Right, to, but aren't we doing that with, aren't we doing that with people who we don't agree with on certain issues too? Like you've got to do it this way or else it's not right. You've got to, you got to be pro-life or else you're doing this wrong. You've got to be pro-choice or else you're doing this wrong. You've got to be anti-immigration. I mean, we, that, I mean, every, things are very black and white in 2021 America, aren't they? I think they've always been very black and white and very polarized and they've only been, it's only been magnified, it's polarization. But you never get to the bottom, you never create innovation, you never cause anything new. If you just look at things in a polarized way, even when you go to invent something, even if you look at science and, and the, the literal connection to breakthroughs is to be in an inquiry. It means to ask more questions. So you don't agree with me, you're, you're um, um, uh, against abortion, let's say. And then for me, I would have so many questions until I got to the bottom that I truly understood. It's not that this person is against it. There's something behind something behind something that is so white knuckling to them that means something. I don't know if something happened with their mother. I don't know what happened, but there's something that's so true to this person and so baked in them that you cannot ungrip what they're holding. Well, can't that just be as simple as not wanting? Can't that just be as simple as having the religious belief that that a fetus is a is a person in that particular situation i don't think we're designed that way we're we're designed to make up interpretations of what we see which is why you can get five people in a sissy an accident every one of them will see something different we're we're designed to see the world through our lens the world that Clay sees is not the world that Audrey sees, even yeah. though we're on the same call. It's never going to happen. Even if we were in the same relationship. Then why do we get so mad at people? Then why do we get so mad at people when they don't see things our way? I think because we are so hard on ourselves too, because we have so many rules and comparisons and unjusts about our own self. I I I don't know how people do some of the things that they do. But I can find compassion when I tap into, there are things that I deeply regret in my life. 
And I can go and examine and say, you know, if somebody shined a light on that, if I only stopped and froze in time with that one thing, uh, that would that would pain me so much, or that's something I wish I could change about myself. I, I, I think at the end of the day, if being divisive and and just arguing with people or avoiding arguing with people was the way to go, or having just a lane that's right and wrong, we would have already accomplished what we needed to accomplish. It's not working. That that's what that's all it has to go to at the bottom line. It's not working, and people know it's not working. Yeah. Well, that's for damn sure. Um, some people did write in specifically for you. Um, uh, let me get to uh, where did I want to. Oh, goodness. Now I lost my page. Um, Teresa from Boulder, Colorado is a listener, asks you, a listener of yours, you and Pete oh. always seem so positive. What's your secret? I, well, thank you, Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, you know, it's interesting how Pete and I do the shows because we call each other before, and, and it's a strange thing, but it's like every person, we, we look through the lens of really kind of falling in love with this person. It was kind of even, oh, before I got on, the, on, on this with you the last couple of days, I looked up your life, and one of the things that I, I told my son this last night when we were having a, a drink and dinner, and, uh, and, he, and I said, his name is Christian. I said, Christian, I just love Clay. And he was like, why? You don't even know him. And I was like, what his life? Because you haven't met him yet. <laughs> well, because I looked at his life. I went through his life and the things that, that he's done and accomplished. And it, and it was so unique in its array, how you parented and chose to do that. And then, you know, you're singing and then you're acting and then the Christmas songs and then the podcast and then the political running. And I thought... This, what I was left with in my heart was like, this man truly is contending with living life his way. And I This is a man who cannot make up his damn mind. <laughs> <laughs> I love that about you. It was very inspiring for me to go through it. And, I, and, and, you know, Pete and I confer about people like that before we get into the podcast. We'll just like sit and talk about that person. I'm like, don't you love that thing about them? I was like, yeah. Oh, did you read that thing too? And, and we'll just go like that. And like, before we get on with that person, we just are so already in that space of looking at who they are. And by the way, this is how Pete coaches. It's how he works with his team. It's for me, what I feel you get the best out of people is you, you might not agree with them, but there's things that you could love about them. And we literally had that conversation before we talked to the guest. And when the guest is done, we talk about them afterwards, about new things that we learned about them. It's just in the space that we're in. It's also a conscious decision on your part. 100%. Too. Not, just to, not just to read about these people who you're talking to beforehand, but also to choose to find things to be positive about, right? I mean, don't you, I mean, that's one thing I tell, I'm, I never, ever, ever talk about my own child, but I will say that's one thing I tell him myself. You get to choose whether to be positive or not. You get to choose what kind of attitude you want to have today. Um, and you make that conscious yeah, choice, right? And Teresa, I'll just tell you, it's so easy for me to be mean. I could wake up every day. <laughs> it's I could easier. Wake up every day and be mean to people and be cynical. It takes nothing. It takes no finger lifting, nothing. But when mm -hmm. I have to be hypercritical with myself and dissect a conversation and ask myself, did you leave that person better than you found them, Audrey? Did you, did you, now that you went off and said what you had to say, maybe that person's father died that week? Like, I don't know what that person's going through. And I, I mean, especially nowadays, I go back and I go to clean up, say, hey, I'm sorry, but this is what didn't work for me about that. So, like, tell me how that landed for you. And we, I've had some great conversations and I've made friends that I probably would have never made before. But that's my, that's not something I'm hanging over people. That's a, a commitment I have to myself 
that just like you said, um, um, Clay, just because I could produce results with aggression doesn't mean inside my heart it makes me feel good. It actually makes me feel more lonely in life. Mena from Houston asks, is there ever a time when activism or standing up for your beliefs is inappropriate? That's a really good question that we've never had before. What's her name? Mena. I'm assuming Mena. Mena, sorry if I'm saying it wrong. Mena or Mina. Yeah. Is there ever a time when activism or standing up for your beliefs is inappropriate? Yes. I think, my personal thing, Mena, I think that when you don't read the room... (laughs) (laughs) I really do think there's well-intended people that have worked themselves up so much because, like we said, they're afraid of conflict, we're afraid of losing things, we're afraid of being unloved, we're afraid of so many things as human beings that by the time you get yourself worked up to stand for something, believe me, you are a worked-up human being with your adrenaline going. And I think a lot of times you don't look at who's the crowd I'm talking to or who's the audience. Are they going through something? Do they have something terrible? There's a level of where we've been cheering on so many people that have been bold and outstanding and just read somebody what they, you know how they needed to be read that you're kind of like you know but could you have done that away could you waited and listened more could you have done it at a different time yeah i do agree with that but i applaud people taking a stand i just think ask i'm going to put and consider other people too i'm going to put an asterisk on that and and add to it because i agree with everything you said but i don't love mena the word inappropriate so i want to change yeah, that word good. because I, like I think that. the word inappropriate i think it would be hard for me to say that there's a time when standing up for your beliefs is inappropriate but i think that there are certainly times when standing up for your belief or having some being an activist may not be as effective in certain ways. So I think that may be what you were trying to say, too. It's not so much that it's inappropriate, yeah. but sometimes it's ineffective and you might not get the solution you're looking for yeah. or you might get the immediate solution, but not the long-term solution that you're looking for if you don't handle it a little bit more deliberately. Yeah, that makes sense? Yeah, I think men have, like, if, I'm sure if we took an example of what we saw on social media so much last year was, you know, black communities standing up and saying black lives matter, and then you got a, a gamut of people going, white lives matter too, and whatever. It's like, okay, but people are saying something in a place of pain. Did we need to post that right now? Did we really need to? That's, in my mind, that's what I had in my mind as she asked that question, I do think. In that case, I take back. I say that's inappropriate. I'm standing. Okay, up. fair enough. I okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I see what you're saying. That's not, that's, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't well timed, but at the same time, even if you do have a strong point. Yes. That's right. It didn't make your argument for, it didn't help. It just inflamed things more. <laughs> just in the same way that defund the police probably inflames things more that's than right. it right. should, right. and it doesn't necessarily get totally. the solution. Totally. Um, uh, I'm going to have to ask this question, even though we didn't really talk too much about D.C., but I have to ask this because we rarely get anybody from Raleigh. So um, Mark from Raleigh asks, how can normal people break through the D.C. bubble to make an impact? Good Lord. That question is to me. That question's to you. Well, what maybe just think? maybe. Well, I don't know how to break through the D.C. bubble. Are you kidding me? I lost. Um, <laughs> I think just let's change the question for you, though, because it's a good one that you could answer. How do normal people make an impact? I mean, you 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 not everybody has a microphone like you and I do. Okay. Not everyone I has a media answer, company like you. do. I'll answer. It was Mark. You said it was Mark. Mark. Uh-huh. Mark. OK, Mark. I'll answer it this way. If you're not effective in an environment, go outside of that environment, produce an extraordinary result, and then bring it back to people. Because a lot of people resist 
change when they don't see an example of it. And that goes back to just our brains are wired towards fear. And you always think change is good. We're trying to change towards good. But we have to remember human beings are built to avoid change because it, anything you don't know or know how it's going to look, you resist because just... That's is that how you did it? Is that how you did it? Because you started working with in the in movie with movie producers, right? And and then did you work with Larry Ellison? Did you? But like you 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 kind of worked in the tech world too. You've kind of worked in a whole bunch of different f- fields. Clay, I'm like, you, I can't make up my mind. No. I know, right? <laughs> so is that is that how you did it? That's what I'm doing too. I can't get ready. Hey, no one would vote for me on Idol. Let me go run for Congress. No, no one would vote for me there. I'll come back to this. Um, is that kind of how you did it too? Went into a different field, produced great results, and then brought it elsewhere? I mean, Yeah, I didn't like... I started off at the entertainment business on camera, and then I made a, a, a pivot towards executive consulting and, and, and paradigm shift work and the nature of, of, of cultural change and and then I pivoted back and I brought the two together. And I thought years later after I had gained success, I thought, what if I could bring the two together? Someone who knows about leadership, knows about change, has dealt with thought leaders in the world effectively in corporations and made major changes. And then somebody who knew storytelling, knew how to reach people, knew how to reach their heart. What if I brought them together? And then I spent two years mentoring with George Lucas' producing partner, Rick McCollum, just training me on how to be a producer. And then I launched my own agency because it was easy for me to do instead of trying to get a job from somebody. And my first client was Larry Ellison, and I, and I launched an island that he bought. Um, and then I just went in to start picking you just up. just an, just launched an <laughs> island just an <laughs> island but but to your to your question, yes, one of the things that i I was trained in and I applied it to everywhere else is when you go in to change an organization or, or an organizational culture or a, a group or a community and and it 's very fixed it 's had a long standing belief system that has wrapped around it don 't go in there you 're going to get eaten up it 's like putting your hand in a blender. Go to an outlier somewhere, a smaller town. Uh, uh, if it's an organization, go to a little, you know, smaller uh, office in the all of the offices that are there and prove your theory, your philosophy. Pilot it. Yeah, pilot it. And once you get those results, bring back, believe me, everybody's ears open when, when it affects and it's, it's successful. And that's what I've done. You don't want to bring in this woman who looks like this and the guys are getting opportunities and I'm not going to sit there and complain about that. I'm going to go out and prove that I can do something and I'll come back and then I'll ask for more. So, And then you'll end up on a podcast with Pete Carroll. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, I don't know that we're starting to head back downhill now, honey. <laughs> but you, but you end up on a podcast with Pete Carroll doing yeah. what you yeah. kind of dream to do, right? So, Amplify Voices, people can find it where. Uh, AmplifyVoices.io is the website, and you can find the podcast on any place that you get your podcasts, and it's called Amplify. any place you get. And when do you guys, When do you guys post? When do they come out? Every single week. On, do you have a day that you that you try to do? Oh, I'm sorry, Wednesday. We come out every Wednesday, Amplify Voices, Conversations from the Heart. And um, yeah. Audrey Cavanesia. I'm Adnesia, sorry. How do you, I, I said it wrong, Cavanesia. didn't I? Yeah. Cavanesia. I said yeah. it wrong the first time, Cavanesia. Yeah. Um, uh, how the heck are we going to get along? We're going to keep talking. We're just going to keep talking. Because the minute we stop talking, we don't have any opportunity anymore. So.